0: There's editing, but only to, like, turn up the volume on any <laughs> mistakes that you make. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I think we have enough now for I love Linux. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript, the good parts, build web applications with Node.js, AngularJS in-depth, and advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 184 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Dave Smith. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. And also, enemies. I'm Charles (laughs) Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a real quick plug for JS Remote Conf, if you want to submit a talk or buy a ticket. Uh, We also have a special guest this week. That's Nick Molnar. Did I say that right? You did. Perfectly. Do you want to introduce yourself?
2: My name is Nick Molnar, said the exact same way. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, and I'm a web developer and a program manager at Microsoft on the cross platform and open tooling team.
0: Can you just explain a little bit about what that team does?
2: Sure. Uh, cross I mean, this, platforms
1: and open tooling. Yeah,
2: yeah, I was about to say the, the name is right what there that on the means. chin. <laughs> well, so that means that the, the products that that team is working on and focused on are cross-platform, meaning running Linux, OSX, and Windows kind of by default. I work on a, on a web product, so that also means cross-browser by default. And open, meaning that everything that we're doing is open-sourced or uh, is involved with open standards, like some work with WC3 or other standardization bodies. And that's really our focus and then we also serve as kind of a, a serve a function at Microsoft to help other parts of the organization to think about and embrace open source, e- either consuming it or shipping it.
0: So my outsider's impression is Microsoft has moved to embrace that. Is that still a big transition for some people inside Microsoft? Or is it kind of just how
2: things work there? You know, I I don't think I can speak to that expertly because I've only been at Microsoft for three or four months now. And it's a huge organization, obviously. So I think that your experiences may vary depending on what parts of Microsoft you work in. I'm in the cloud and enterprise division. And so that's the group that brings you .NET, Visual Studio, uh, a lot of other developer-focused products. And I think that that division is very well aligned in embracing open source now. Uh, And so I think that you should continue to see us move forward and evolve in that space.
1: Yeah, I remember when Microsoft was like the evil empire and, you know, oh, Microsoft. But it seems like they've really kind of opened up and said, you know what? Mm -hmm. There's a real ecosystem out there beyond just the Windows server and Microsoft desktop arena. And there are a lot of things that they put out there. One of the things that uh, I know that they did, we did an episode on it on Adventures in Angular was uh, Visual Studio Code. And all of the people that I've talked to that are using it and loving it are on Macs.
2: Yeah, exactly. Visual Studio Code is my team. Not my immediate team, but the, the guys in my group puts out Visual Studio Code. And, it, and it's great. I use it. It's actually, you're, you're stealing my thunder. It's, it's one of my picks for today's episode because it's great for, for JavaScript. Use it for Node, for front-end stuff. Uh, it's really fast and lightweight. I'm really enjoying using it over some of the other similar text editors like Brackets, which I was trying to use before, but I wasn't super successful with.
0: So I I think we brought you on here to talk specifically about performance. Is that right?
2: Yes, that is mostly what I focus on and care about. And the, the product that I work on, which is an open source debugging and diagnostics tool called Glimpse, its main use case is around performance. So I've kind of been entrenched in the performance space, particularly web performance for Almost uh, five years now. This
0: is—I don't know—it's kind of a hard topic to give an introduction to, right? How do you how do you introduce performance? Computers are fast, but uh, we you, write you, sometimes we write slow code. It's very easy.
2: You just introduce it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Ready for the most performant performance talk you've ever had? Well, so the way that I like to do it is I have two main talks that I do. Each are an hour long. So obviously, we don't have the time to cover all of that now. When I talk about web performance but one of them really digs into uh, how to measure web performance and what to measure. And the other one digs into, okay, here's the common problems and how you would fix them. So we might want to start to talk about why performance even matters. Maybe your audience already agrees that it does. And so we can skip that. And if not, then we can dig straight into what to measure and how to measure it. Whatever you guys are more interested in, you let me know.
0: I think why it matters would be important. I think You might have people that think computers get faster every year, or they have gotten faster every year, especially in the browser. uh, VMs get faster every year. So, I mean, you just wait, and then your performance is better.
2: Yeah, that is an approach. That's an approach that we used for a long time. Unfortunately, we're kind of at a bottleneck with web performance, and specifically because the big bottleneck there tends to be latency, and latency is not really getting much better. And so there's techniques that we can use to kind of get ourselves around the latency problem.
0: So when you say latency, you mean the round-trip time to talk to a server and get a response, right? Yes, exactly. So
3: you're saying that Moore's Law does not apply to the speed of light.
0: (laughs) No, no, it does not. That's just because the high-frequency traders have not figured out how to make money off of making Moore's (laughs) Law apply to the speed of light yet.
2: (laughs) Oh, trust me. The high-frequency traders, they think about the speed of light all the time. When I was living in New York, I did a lot of consulting for banks. And literally, the office they would pick, and based on how close it was to to the next major internet hop. That was a competitive advantage for these Whoa. companies.
3: Oh my gosh!
2: They're responsible for laying a lot of fiber optic cable, if I understand correctly. Yes, you are exactly right. Milliseconds, nanoseconds, that kind of stuff matters. It leads to some very interesting and ugly architectures. They're not the clean architectures that you would that you would like to build as a as a purist software developer, because you're like ah. Extra hop, extra call. Nope, not mm-hmm. gonna do that. Inline everything, and it's like, oh, this code is <laughs> pain to work on. But
3: so maybe that's a good question to open, but it, it, to open the topic. But is good, clean architecture, generally speaking, at odds with high performance code? It's a really
2: good question, and I would have to say, to a degree, yes. There, there is a lot of things that you would do, right? So l- let's take an example, right? One of the most simple things that you can do in web, specifically, is to bundle and minify your assets, right? So take your JavaScript and your CSS, you minify it, you strip out all the white space and then bundle it, meaning if you have two or three CSS files that you might have split up for modularity purposes, for example, jamming those things all together. Now, why I say it might be at odds is kind of slightly is because what I'm describing to you there, that is the distribution, right? If the web was binary, if it was compilable, we we don't really think about what the compiled code looks like in a native application. We only care about the source.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: However, because of the way the web works and the stateless nature where there's a server and a client, there's a lot of times where we're using our clients and, and the debugging tools built into our browsers to look at that JavaScript, to look at that CSS. And so when we pop it open and it no longer resembles what it did when we wrote it, that does kind of make the architecture a little less clean because we've made this optimization to improve performance, but now it's a little less debuggable, maintainable, uh, etc. cetera.
0: So, uh, you start talking about latency and that's not a thing that gets faster as processors get faster. What do we do about that? Oh, and we got to talk to some
2: physicists about that. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so, I mean, when we think about processors, so, so let's, let's break down the way that a page renders. Alright, so the very first thing that typically happens is your browser will issue a request. Issuing a request means we're going across the network, right? So right there, the very first bottleneck we might hit is network. On the other side of the network, the server receives the request and it does some processing. Uh, maybe you're using, you know, PHP or some uh, templating language or something like that on the back end that has to build up the HTML. Once that is done, the HTML is really kind of, uh, it's a honeydew list, right? Every Saturday, my wife tells me here's the things that I need to do. I, I got to go cut the grass and I need to go pick up milk and, and you know do this, that, and the other. HTML is really just a to-do list for the browser. And so the server puts together the honey-do list and it sends it down to the browser and then the browser says, oh, okay, well now I need to go and I need to download these JavaScript files and I need to download these CSS files and I need to go download these images. And so once again, we're hitting the, the network there. And once it gets all of those assets, it has to render them or execute them or parse them based on the type of asset. So when we talk about CPU performance and Moore's law that does apply to things like server side rendering time, right? The PHP chunk that I mentioned there. Mm -hmm. And it applies to the JavaScript side if you're running custom code on the client, but all of the in-between time is latency. And so the closer we can be to the server or the faster that connection between the client and the server is the better the latency. So let me give you an example. I just did a quick little performance Audit of your guys's website, the JavaScript JavaScript site. Oh the, no! The <laughs> no, 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 no I'm, I'm, I, I won't. I won't shame
0: the anybody. cobbler's children.
1: Oh,
2: <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> use shame
1: away. I, oh. I wrote it myself, but go ahead. So <laughs>
2: you
0: wrote that, Chuck? I was wondering who did that. Yeah,
2: I, I, I wasn't even sure if, it, if this was like a CMS that you guys were like built in with because it's DevChatTV. Anyway, there's 17 JavaScript files that are there. So the round <laughs> trip, talk, <laughs> the oh, Chuck, oh. what are you doing? <laughs> so the round trip time happens on every single one of those requests. And so if we can eliminate latency, then that wouldn't be as much of a problem. And so when I say we have to get physicists involved, is because assuming that we're on fiber optic, which obviously most of us aren't on fiber optic from end to end. But even in fiber optic, at this point, we're only getting about two thirds of what the speed of light is in a vacuum. And so there are universities working on this problem, trying to eke out additional percentage points on the speed of light through fiber, because it matters. And if you compare latency to bandwidth, there's been studies that will take, uh, you know, a large group of websites, and they will increase the bandwidth and reload the website over and over again. So one megabit a second, two megabits a second, etc, etc, and see how long it takes to load each of those sites. Bandwidth does matter for common web sites up to a certain point, but then it has a huge diminishing law of returns. When you start getting, you know, everybody's talking about oh, I want Google Fiber or I want Fios. And the reality is if you're mostly just surfing the web, you're not going to see much of a difference between the two. That comes into you know, watching video and doing other bandwidth-heavy things. Whereas so latency doesn't... To,
0: oh, go ahead. Can you define what bandwidth is too? We've talked a little bit about what latency is, but just, just to make sure everyone has a... We're, we're working off the same knowledge base.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think of bandwidth as capacity. Right, so bandwidth is when... Your city decides that to get traffic moving more quickly, they're going to add another lane to the highway. Now, instead of three cars wide at a time, it can be four cars at a time. So it is the capacity, is the amount of cars that are able to travel down that street at the same time. Whereas latency is a Pinto versus a Ferrari. And it doesn't matter how many lanes there are, it's how fast can you get from point A to point B. Does that illustration kind of clear up the difference between bandwidth and latency? Yeah, sure. so it's
3: it's bits per second versus milliseconds round-trip time, right?
2: Exactly. And it gets really confusing because if you turn on the radio or whatever and hear any of your broadband providers, they tell you, well, our speed is 100 megabits a second or whatever it is. Well, that's a lie. That's not their speed. That's their capacity. The reality is if your capacity gets choked off, it will affect your speed or your latency, but they're kind of two independent things that sometimes step on each other.
0: Okay. I totally cut you off, though. You're in the middle. You're building up steam, and then I I dumped a big bucket
2: of water on your fire. Yeah, now I'm trying to look at the coals and remember where I was going.
3: Yeah, so I, the, the question well, was... Hold on. I think we're in the middle of criticizing Chuck for writing a slow website. Can you go with
1: that? <laughs> I know. 17 <laughs> JavaScript files. I mean, it takes
2: 20 years, right? Well, I... I there are certainly things that you guys can do to improve it. I think one of your challenges is most of those JavaScript files seem to be being served from different service providers. I think I see a lot of Google. I see Add This. I see Stripe. I see uh, Track.js, et cetera, et cetera. And so you guys have extra challenges because you're relying on services. And that's really common in today's kind of mashup. That's, I'm showing my age to say that word mashup internet, right? Where we're cobbling together these different services.
3: So you're going with the honeydew list and, uh, the
2: server gives you a bunch of HTML and you're waiting for it to come back. And then yes, that's where what's I was. Next? Thank you so much. So everything comes back to the browser. It goes off and downloads all those things. So the CPU, we were talking about Moore's law that applies on both the server and the client executing the JavaScript. But the network is usually the thing that you want to optimize first. So the studies show. That the 80-20 rule applies here. About 80% of the performance problems that you'll see in web applications can be solved with networking optimizations. And the study was recently redone with a focus on mobile. And, but it goes from 80-20 to 90-10 on mobile because those networks are, are so deficient compared to what we're getting on a standard kind of desktop machine. So for example, with these files that you guys have, I think the biggest single thing that you can do on your website is to enable caching of all of these assets. Uh, Right now, there's very very few files being cached, so I'm downloading them again and again each time I click on another link on the page, whereas if I could cache them and not have to re-download them, what that does is instead of me having to deal with latency, I can just skip it because I'm going to read it from disk instead of going across the network again.
1: So you're talking client-side caching?
2: Yes, HTTP-level caching. And so usually you just go into your web server and there's a configuration file where you can add a configuration header and that header will tell the browser, Hey, listen, this file here, it's good for the next week, 10 minutes, whatever you guys deem to be appropriate. And then the browser won't download it again for that time frame.
1: Oh yeah. There's a new episode every 10 minutes.
2: Yeah. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. I would imagine you guys could get away with weekly yeah. caching, and some assets probably longer. Like I don't think you probably change your logo very often. So you know, cash the logo for a month, two months, something like that.
1: Yeah, that makes yeah. sense.
2: So now, you know, some people might say, okay, none, none of this really matters. And this this goes back to what we originally were thinking. Well, why does performance matter? There's been all, all the big companies have done studies on performance and what it does. So Amazon added 100 milliseconds of load time and they lost 1% of sales. Oh, wow. So, 100 milliseconds, this is a number that's so small that it's kind of hard to think about. We don't really deal with milla much of anything, maybe millimeters once in a while. So what I want you to do is I want you to blink your eyes. That blink just took between three and 400 milliseconds. So 100 milliseconds, and Amazon lost 1% of their sales.
3: I'm literally sitting here blinking as fast as I can.
0: <laughs> I've been training my blink reflexes for a long time, and I can tell you I can blink in like... A hundred milliseconds. <laughs> milliseconds.
3: Well, that's still
2: 1% of Amazon
3: sales. So. Jameson has a superpower.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at Google, they did this experiment where they increased the number of results that were being shown on their search results page. And that ended up adding an additional 500 milliseconds. So half a second. And they lost 20% of their revenue and ad click-throughs because of that. So 500 milliseconds, 20% is pretty big and then another study done by etsy they added 160k of hidden images to their page and their bounce rate increased by 12 percent that means the number of people that went to that page and no others went up by 12 percent oh man and, and you know it's easy for me to spout figures and these companies care because they're selling something right like bottom line matters they can tie performance to revenue and you know a lot of the users and my, myself included i haven't worked on a ton of e-commerce websites But I certainly have worked on content websites and things like that. And uh, this stuff matters for content as well. Google has added a a factor into their algorithm for page speed. And the faster your site is, the higher up in the index Uh you'll move. So you get more traffic if you're faster. In fact, they're experimenting. This popped up, I believe, in December of last year with what I call the scarlet letter of the the web. They put this little... Red slow icon next to websites that they deem to be too slow. Oh, and wow. I like think they were A <laughs> B testing that. You certainly don't want that to show up. <laughs> yeah. And then, lastly, the thing that I'll say is you know, more and more, and, and maybe even a majority of the time now, your website is accessed via a mobile device, right? I'm holding my iPhone in my hands right now, and these devices are underpowered compared to what we've been working on. Uh, you know, They've been out for five years or so, which is, which is quite a while in internet time. But before that, we kind of didn't worry about performance that much because bandwidth was getting so good and, you know, Moore's law was there. And now it's not because people are using these things. And so there are certain websites that I know if I go to and I'll read an article, I can see my battery drop. 10-15% just because I'm reading an article and they're doing really dumb things with their CSS and all these extra animations and things like that. It's
3: on scroll events, I guarantee it.
2: (laughs) Oh man, those are the worst. (laughs) Honestly, honestly, that's one of the worst things that you can do. Just get rid of on scroll events. If you can avoid it in any way possible, talk to your designer and get rid of on scroll events. And then lastly, I mean, th- those are, those are really good audience and financial reasons to consider performance and make sure that your applications are as, as performant as possible. But performance is, should not be your number one concern, right? I, Donald Knuth was famous for his quote about premature optimization is the root of all evil and, and software development. And so. You know, I kind of want to put a little gut check in for the listeners to not just run off and say, oh my gosh, we're going to increase our sales if I go and I make this thing faster. What you really need to think about in your application is there's this hierarchy of needs. And we're, we're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, potentially, right? He's a psychologist who said that there's certain fundamental needs that humans must meet first before they worry about more advanced needs. Yeah, so, it's like example, the
0: triangle with Wi-Fi on the bottom.
2: And then exactly. The Everybody blog posts, posts Wi-Fi. about
0: self-actualization on medium on the top.
2: Exactly. So there's uh, the UX director of MailChimp in Philadelphia. His name is Aaron Walter. He's proposed a similar pyramid, which is the hierarchy of needs for users of software. And so the very first thing that your users need out of your software is they need your software to be functional. It has to have a problem. It has to solve a problem that they have. And then next, it kind of needs to be reliable. It needs to do that without crashing all the time and in a consistent manner. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. My handle is Nick N I K. MD23. And a few years ago, you guys might remember that Twitter was so notorious for being unreliable that their mascot, the fail whale, kind of became famous in and of himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so during that <laughs> during that time when Twitter had reliability problems, I didn't really use it because it didn't meet that second level of the hierarchy, which is reliability. Now Walter goes on to suggest that the next level of the hierarchy is usability. And there's been a big shift and a big focus on design and UX in our industry, right? I I maybe give Apple some credit for that with what they did with their devices, but everybody really cares about design now. But part of usability, and this is the part that I add into the hierarchy, is performance, right? If it's beautiful, but I can't access it quickly enough, then I'm not going to
0: use it. So, yeah, when I hear about performance as usability. I think of you mentioned those on scroll things. I've seen a lot of beautiful PR sites where there are amazing things Mm -hmm. happening when you scroll down the page, just these gorgeous animations, but it, it hijacks your scroll and then it feels broken. And then I I don't like them anymore. Like there's a little angel flying across the background But when I scroll down, it doesn't scroll down. Like, why? I, I don't care. I don't want that angel there. I want to scroll down. That's why I'm scrolling down.
3: Yeah. You will scroll and, the angel and you will like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't press the show angel
2: button. I pressed the scroll down button. And I, I would assume that if that was the only way to get to the data that you need, you might deal with it. But if there was a competitor that could give you that same information that was functional, reliable, and usable, you would switch over to them. Because the yeah, switching yeah. cost on the web is so cheap, right? I control L, I type in a new URL, and I'm gone. And so you have to really be invested in getting those those users. So Walter's uh, hierarchy goes on to finish. The, the top of the pyramid is that we can begin to create pleasurable software. And this is software that it is functional, it is reliable, it is usable, it is performant. But it's also pleasurable. And so you, you see that in really beloved products that we all talk about, like, GitHub or Trello, where the personality of the team is coming through in fun little ways. And so we get, you know, OctoCat Jedis on 404s for GitHub and a barking dog named Taco on Trello, right? Like we can see that team and it's kind of fun to use those apps and and see what kind of happens because they've made it to the top of this pyramid and now they're doing pleasurable things.
3: That's a really hard place to get in my experience as a developer.
2: Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever gotten there. I was just thinking about that. I, I completely agree. I don't know if I've gotten there either, but I, I'm I'm trying to get there. And that's why performance has been, you know, kind of the, my focus for the last five, five or so years.
0: Another appealing thing about performance is it feels like as a developer, I have a lot more control over the performance than I do over the pleasure that people get from the app, right? Like there's a, a spectrum of how involved developers mm-hmm. are with customers and project management and things like that. But I think even if you're heavily involved in the direction of the product, if you're the one building it still, it can feel like this amorphous mass of desires. And and it's hard to say, like, yep, I nailed it when when you're down in the code, I think. But the performance, you can measure it and you can say, yep, it's yeah. faster.
2: I did it. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I think the only time that people that developers maybe have trouble controlling the performance is when they you know, they work in a team where they are the development team and the UX team is another team, and they throw things over the wall. And that from a cultural standpoint is dangerous. Performance is something that ideally the entire organization would be bought into from top to bottom. And there's a concept called the performance budget, where everybody would agree, just like You know, We don't want any bugs, and there's this criteria for what makes the software of good quality. There's criteria for what makes software performant. So you might say, and we haven't really talked about the different metrics that are available, but you might say something like, well, our speed index is going to be 2,500 milliseconds. And that's the budget. And if the designer designs something that there's no way for it to be implemented in that time frame, then we all agree as an organization that we're not going to implement that feature, at least not in the way that it's designed right now. And so I agree with you that developers typically have a lot more control over the performance of things, but if they're not working closely with their designers, that can get away from them rather quickly.
0: So I want to ask about a couple of things. The first one is you mentioned the the examples you mentioned on performance were in e-commerce websites where there's a very direct monetary cost to performance where I mean there's the bounce rate goes up bounce rate going up means you make less money there's a whole other world of applications I mean especially enterprise apps right if your company has bought this application and you have to use it to get your job done to some degree performance doesn't matter as much right Uh, I mean it'll make your life better if it's faster but if you have to use it how, how do you justify spending time on performance if it's already okay ish in a situation like that, where you're the company making this enterprise software.
2: It's certainly something that needs to be balanced and considered as ROI. So when I was consulting, I did a bunch of these you know, corporate intranet type applications that maybe had somewhere between 20 or 2,000 users, pretty small on the use case scenario. But a lot of times in those places, management would say to me, well, as long as the page loads in 30 seconds, it's fine, it's only used by 50 people. And so, you know, what what good enough is in your in your scenario, I'm not I'm not sure. But the easy thing to do there is, if there's an action that those 50 people have to take every day, and it takes 10 seconds, but you could whittle it down to five seconds, it's easy to do the math and say, well, these 50 people times five seconds times 365 days a year times their average salary, and you will get a number that's in the thousands. Now, does it make sense? Would it be cheaper for me to go and fix that and whittle those five seconds down? Would it be cheaper than the thousands of dollars that we're going to spend over the next year? And how long is this software supposed to last for? Because usually those systems are built to last for five, ten years. Um, And so I think in that case, it's very easy to make the ROI decision on whether or not you should be investing in a particular performance scenario. Now,
3: now the the scenario you just... Described sounds kind of like a linear relationship between the amount of money that it would be worth to whittle the performance down. In my experience, it seems like it's more of a step function, which is like at some point the user becomes distracted and they go do something else while they're waiting for your page to load. And then it doesn't matter if it takes two seconds or 10 seconds if the distraction point is at one second. Have you any experience with that sort of measurements or research?
2: Yeah, I know the research for when users do get distracted as far as calculating ROI because they've switched tasks. I know generally that all of the research shows that context switching is, is very bad and it takes a lot of time just to, to do that uh, and to come back to a task. How you, the math behind that is above my pay grade and my Algebra 2 schooling. So, um, but basically, I mean, as far as, as when people begin to lose interest, the, the studies were done in 1968 at IBM and the same study was reconducted by, Jacob Nielsen again in 1993 and in 2005. And the numbers didn't change over those 40-odd years. And so basically what that comes down to is 100 milliseconds, right? The number that we talked about earlier, that feels instant to a user. So I'm not saying that you need to respond to a web request within 100 milliseconds because best of luck to you making that happen. But if I go in and click a button on your site, that button needs to... To press, right? It needs to be a sad button, or it needs to say loading, or it needs to disable, it needs to do something within 100 milliseconds to let me know that I got the gesture. And you know the sites that don't do that because you'll click on something and you're like, oh, maybe my mouse is broken or the batteries are dying. And you go and you try to click again. That's the 100 milliseconds. And that feels instant. A 1000 milliseconds, one second is uninterrupted thought. So if I can click on that button, one Mississippi and I'm seeing the response come back. You're never going to lose your user. They're still focused on the task that was at hand. Now the study went all the way up to 10,000 milliseconds, up to 10 seconds at 10 seconds. Not one user in any of these three repeated studies still had their attention on the task they were trying to accomplish. The numbers around three seconds are where people will start to leave now, but at 10 for sure you've lost even the most patience of users. And so, you know, Maybe in your experience, because I'm going to speak to your experience now since that's what you asked me to do. Maybe in your <laughs> experience, uh, switching tasks and, and firing off something and letting it run and coming back to it later is fine. And you know what? There are tasks that just take that long, right? Maybe you have a huge amount of data to crunch or you're waiting on results to come in from the field or something like that. And that's fine. But what I would recommend doing in those situations is responding quickly that you've and acknowledging the user's gesture. And then if it's going to be a while, find another way of notifying them, right? There's notification APIs built into HTML5 now. You can email your user. Maybe you can tie in an am their user in a corporate setting. Like There are ways to draw them back into the activity and just kind of acknowledge, hey, listen, I can't meet these kinds of demands that Nick's talking about here, right? These a 1,000 milliseconds uninterrupted thought, that's fine. Let me find a way to release my user's psychic weight so they don't have to think about this anymore and draw them back in later when I'm ready for them.
3: Or maybe just present Flappy Bird to them to keep them busy, right?
2: <laughs>
3: the old Chrome 404 page model.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, it's broken, yeah. but it's entertainingly broken. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you could, that, yeah, there's personality coming through. You could definitely do that. I think that calculating the ROI on that might be a little bit easier. <laughs> so uh, I, met, I oh, mentioned a term here called speed index. Is that something that you guys are familiar with? No, I'm not. Okay, so... I think that this is something important because what I find that when people dig into web performance, one of the problems they run into is there's hundreds of different metrics that might or might not be useful. And so Tim Cadillac is a is a well-known developer in the performance space. And he's kind of broken down all of these metrics into, into four categories that I really like. And so the first of the metrics is quantitative metrics, and these are the metrics that maybe you've you've heard of before. They're very simple, basic numbers. So they're things like page load time, page weight, number of images, number of HTTP directs. They're all just simple numbers. But the problem with them is if I tell you that there's 17 javascript files on your page that doesn't necessarily mean that it's slow we have these gut reactions that number sounds really high but if i tell you i have two different pages and one has three javascript files on it and one has two javascript files on it you don't actually know which one is faster because quantitative metrics don't tell you anything about performance so that the next category of metrics are rule-based metrics and what these really kind of do is they look at your quantitative metrics they run some analysis on top of them and apply best practices so if you think about tools like Yahoo's y Slow or Google's PageSpeed that will literally give you a grade and say, hey, your website is an 88 or your website gets a B, those are rule-based metrics. And they typically tell you, well, maybe you would have an A if you cache these resources or if you uh, minify this JavaScript file, et cetera, et cetera. But just because my website is an A, that doesn't mean that it's fast. It just means that I'm following the current best practices. So people like to use rule-based metrics because it's kind of one number that you can rally behind and and point your boss to it. But like I said, it's not really telling you anything about the performance of the site. For that, we have to start getting into milestone-based metrics. Milestone metrics measure the amount of time between when a navigation began and some processing event that happened in the browser. And so there's a couple of famous ones for this. So you might have heard of time to first byte. That's from when I I click on the link, how long is it until the server responds and I get the first byte of the response? But there's also time to first paint, how long until the first pixel actually renders on the screen. And then the, the two most famous milestone metrics, because they're built into all of the developer tools, is the time to DOM content loaded and the time to load. But a lot of people don't even understand the difference between those two, DOM content loaded and and load, right? DOM Dom content loaded is when the HTML has finished downloading and the browser has parsed it and has turned that HTML into a DOM and you are ready to begin manipulating with it it does not mean that all of the rest of the assets on that honeydew list have been downloaded. So you might still be waiting for JavaScript and for images and things like that before when DOM content loading hits. But in time to load on the onload, now all of those assets have finished downloading. And then maybe you're going to go and kick off some more with JavaScript or something like that, but that's kind of out of purview. And so Milestone metrics are, are really great because they get down to performance. I can say this took 1,200 milliseconds, and now it takes 800 milliseconds, and it's faster because I'm talking about time and speed again. Uh, but the problem is they're extremely technical, right? Even here, I had to explain the difference between DOM content loaded and, and onload, and I don't even know if I did that great of a job explaining it to this technical audience. So imagine having that conversation with your non-technical manager. So some people have tried to make custom milestone metrics, which is a little bit better, So Twitter is famous for this. They have a metric on their page, which is time to first tweet. How long is it until the first tweet of your timeline appears? Or you can imagine YouTube having time to video playback. How long until the video starts playing? And those are business specific, right? Twitter is in the business of serving tweets and YouTube is in the business of serving videos. And so making those metrics specific to the business helps everybody get behind that culture and helps everybody understand especially when you're starting to put together something like a performance budget. Now, one of the challenges around milestone metrics is I could have a site and you guys could have a site and we could both have an onload time of three seconds. But I'm kind of this old school guy. Maybe I just did everything on the back end. And at three seconds, when onload hits, my user can see all of the content. But you guys do really cool things with Angular and React and Ember and who am I leaving out? at? Uh, Whoever else. We use them all. We use all the front end frameworks. You use them all. So it's a JavaScript mm -hmm. podcast. So when you guys are using, (laughs) when you guys are using Flux that's my .js. That's Nick's new framework. When you guys are using that at three seconds, you hit onload. Maybe there's not actually a lot of content there because that's the moment in which you start Ajaxing everything in. So even though we have the exact same onload time, the user would perceive our pages to feel different they would perceive my page the old-fashioned boring one maybe to be a little bit faster and so the fourth category the fourth and final category of metrics are are these perceived metrics where we try to measure the way that the user feels about how fast the page loads and so google and microsoft and a bunch of other companies have tried to come up with perceived metrics that have mostly failed because they've been very difficult to calculate but there's One that's kind of still hanging on, and and it's what people are rallying around. And that's the one that I mentioned before. That's the speed index. And so what the speed index does is it the engine that calculates it is at uh, webpagetest.org. And so what that does is it captures a video playback of your page loading, and it looks at frames every tenth of a second, and it calculates how visually complete is that frame to the final frame. And so it builds a score. And it charts those percentages over time. And that that makes a curve, right? So we might be at 0%, 0%, 14%, 56%, 97%, 98%, 100%, right? And so we get this little curve if we plotted that out. You take the area above the curve, and that's what makes the speed index. That's all very mathematical and, and weird sounding. But basically, it's how much of your site got to your user how quickly. And so, for example, the, the JavaScript Jabber, uh, site has a speed index of around 5000 milliseconds i did nine loads of it to and it came up with a median run to to get that 5000 that's on the first load uh, and so that metric that's the one that i really recommend that if you're going to think about performance all of the other metrics might actually make sense for you, but for, the, for dipping your toes in the water, get the speed index and use that to measure whether you're getting faster or slower. You might actually add a bunch of images in JavaScript and still be able to reduce your speed index because speed index takes everything into account. The numbers, the counts, the weights, all of that gets encompassed into one number, which is a lot easier to socialize. So can you say again, how does speed
3: index know that your page is fully loaded? In a day, you know, in nowadays, we have lots of Ajax and stuff that manipulates the page after the initial load. How does it, how does it know? Does it just like settle over time?
2: Yeah. So when you set up webpagetest.org to run a test run, by default, what it does is it waits until onload happens and then it waits until there's two seconds without any network activity. So if onload, you go and you Ajax and a bunch of things, it will wait until all of that has finished and you haven't requested anything else. For two seconds. However, that's very configurable. So you can put in, you know, X number of seconds after onload or cut it off at DOM content loaded or cut it off at onload, whatever makes sense for your application. You can kind of tweak it to figure out what the end state is and then reverse engineer the, the percent completes from there.
1: Oh,
3: cool.
2: Makes sense. And is this a Chrome extension so I could use it to test uh, apps behind a login? It's not a Chrome extension. So there, so there's a publicly available instance at webpagetest.org and that has agents that run literally all over the world. So you can run tests from Tokyo, from Moscow, from LA, from Brazil. You pick a place, and that way you can start to test what the latency looks like from these different places. And you can run it on all different browsers and even different devices. There's some Android devices and some iPhones hooked up to the service, and you can literally run that, and that's all free. Now, your problem if you want to get to a a site that's behind the firewall, that's going to give you a bit more of a challenge. So there's two ways that you can get around that. Is one you can set well, up... Well, I'm not, I'm not behind a firewall, behind a login wall. Same. Is that oh. what you're thinking? Okay. Uh, well, the, the login wall is a little bit easier. Actually, so you can do... If you support HTTP basic auth, you can actually enter in a username and password on the site. I don't recommend putting in a real username and password. Have like a test user that you disable after your test. But you can also uh, run a script. And the script works kind of like Selenium. It's a slightly different syntax. And you'll put in the script right there on the website and it will execute it and run it. If you're behind a firewall, the more complicated scenario, you can run a private instance of WebPageTest. And Pat Meenan, the guy who he works for Google, and he's the main guy behind WebPageTest, he actually makes that very easy because he has AMIs available. So you can get WebPageTest completely up and running on Azure, and then you can just set up a tunnel between your infrastructure and, a, uh, I'm sorry, not Azure, on Amazon Web Services. You I was going to say,
0: up- are you just announcing that Azure supports AMIs? That's-
2: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> that it would is. be cool. But no, that's me working from Microsoft. Azure rolls off my tongue a little bit more easier uh, than Amazon. Either way, once you get it set up, you can have that local tunnel and then you can hit your internal infrastructure.
0: So I keep coming up with more questions and I'm writing them all down. We, we might not get to all of them, but I want to ask about the phenomenon of most developers developing on blazing fast hardware. And how do you get a feel for how your site actually performs when you're used to working on a 10 million core 8000 gigahertz I don't know most of our computers are, are I would say faster than the average user's computer especially when you take mobile into account is it just a habit where you just try it on on different computers or how do you how do you avoid the it feels fast on my machine syndrome
2: so this is I kind of have a threefold answer to this right because it works on my machine is a rampant rampantly bad syndrome that happens in our industry and the, and the problem here is in that scenario is my machine because my machine is, it's not even necessarily that my machine is fast because maybe some of my users have fast machines. The problem is that my machine is my machine every single day. It's always running the same operating system. It's always on the same, probably very stable connection. It's always in the same location in the world. Usually uh, may, I mean, maybe, I'm, you might ahead. even be running your server on your machine too. Right. So the latency mm-hmm. goes away. Yeah. Zero latency. Exactly. Yeah. That's why, well, that's why geolocation uh, matters there too. Right. Not just geolocation, like, New York to LA, but you know, even from on top of my desk to below my desk is a bigger deal than all running in the same machine.
1: Well, and I've also got the same browser with the same browser plugins that can also affect performance and behavior.
2: Exactly. So let's just focus on on those four variables: right, device type, the browser, the geolocation, and the connection speed. Right. If we made a matrix of those four variables across our entire user base we would come up with a a test scenario so large we probably wouldn't be able to finish executing it for even the most simple of sites and i think because of that problem it's so daunting that a lot of developers just say hey well listen i'm going to do the best i can i'm going to open up two different browsers i'm going to test it and okay we're moving on so what we what we really want to do is we would love to create a specific test for every combination of those variables like the guy who's on a camel in Egypt using Firefox OS, because I'm pretty sure that's the only place Firefox OS is used. If that <laughs> guy wanted to access my website, I, it would be so difficult for me to create a test that showed me his performance. So instead, let's kind of let's do something radical and turn this whole thing on its head, and let's let our users be our testers for us. All right now, this sounds kind of weird, right? Because you don't think of testing. You don't, you don't let your end users do your testing usually, right? Especially when we're talking about functional testing or, or testing for correctness.
1: <laughs> I don't uh, know. It, oh. de- it, it depends. <laughs> I was going to say, you just made a whole bunch of people happy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my test is push to production.
2: Yeah. Pushed. We're good to go. New well, feature we, done. Bam. <laughs> what we really want to do in the performance case is let that guy tell us how fast his experience is. And that's, to do that is actually easier than you would think. So the... The W3C has a web performance working group, and that group is basically dedicated to solving this problem. They solve some other problems with performance on the browser, but um, the main body of their work is around this. And so they have introduced three different specifications that together belong to a style of performance measurement called RUM, which stands for Real User Monitoring. So the scenario that you brought up this with this works on my machine, if we enable RUM with these specifications. It's very easy. Navigation timing, resource timing, and user timing. Those are the name of the three specifications. We literally write two or three lines of JavaScript. All of the milestone metrics that we've talked about, including the custom ones like time to first tweet, get gathered and can be sent back to our server for further analysis. So the question of whether or not a page is fast or not should never be answered by you, the developer, based on your machine or even your own personal experience using the website. Instead, you can literally get real performance data from all of your users and then go and track down the pages or the usage scenarios through the application that are slow and focus on those. And so that's the first kind of style of performance testing, which is the real user monitoring. And it's really good for answering how fast is a page or a scenario and really how fast is it? Not just because my computer says it's fast, but because the guy on the camel in Egypt says that it's fast. The other technique is the one that we've kind of talked about already with test. That's called synthetic testing. So test does let you alter some of these variables. I mentioned you can change the device, and you can change the browser, and you can change the location, but you're still only limited to a, you know, a dozen or so locations and a handful of devices, and you're not really getting the coverage that your user base gets. But because WebPageTest and other synthetic testing services like this Used highly instrumented browsers right where they're digging down into the networking layer and things like that we can get super deep analytics and figure out okay i know that this page is slow because my rum data told me let me run it through web page test and figure out how will i make it faster because it will really show me everything that's happening on the network and in the browser and so synthetic testing is good for answering how do i make a page faster once you already know that it's slow Uh, So I think that that kind of uh, goes a long way towards answering that question and making sure that it's not necessarily the developers in charge of doing that performance testing, but leveraging the user base and getting that data back. You can just use these APIs and send the data back to your own server and then store it and aggregate it and report on it however you want to. Or there's services out there that will do this for you. In fact, Google Analytics, if you go in and turn on an option, will start to gather some performance information for you from real users. So it that's if you're using Google Analytics, that's probably the easiest thing to do to start getting real performance data.
1: All right, we only have a couple minutes left. My question is, so have you actually done this on some websites and can you kind of give us an overview of what you found and how you approached the performance issues you found?
2: Yes, so I've done this on, on lots of websites. People ask me to do performance audits of their pages all the time. The best example to do this is pick number two, I have a video, uh, it's an hour long where I take a website and I do a performance audit and we go through and make everything faster.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and so that might be the best way to get up and running with this, but I can quickly describe in a couple of minutes that we have here, uh, my general approach. The very first thing that I do is I, if I don't know anything about the website, it's not a website that I own necessarily is I will do synthetic testing since the rum data isn't there. And so uh, I'll run it through web page test. I'll see what it's telling me to do. And usually I'm going to focus in on the networking ones uh, recommendations first. So the ones that we've kind of already talked about, minifying, bundling, compression, caching, turning those kinds of things on, that usually gives you a, a very good boost from there. If it turns out to be a server-side problem or a client-side problem, the JavaScript or the backend language, you know, the Ruby or the Python or the Node or whatever is taking too long that's when you crack open a CPU profiler and you run that against your application as you make some requests to it and you start to figure out which methods, which functions in your application are taking a long time. And then you go and start making those optimizations in your programming language of choice. Uh, So that's kind of really the first step. Now, there's a guy, he's a colonel in the US military, John Boyd, and he he devised something called the OODA loop, O-O-D-A. And what I recommend is when anybody is trying to do a performance audit, they follow the rules of this OODA loop. And so the OODA loop is four phases. It's observed. That's the very first step. And so that's you're going to look at your real user metrics, whatever data that you have. And so you will see what's happening in real life. Then you will orient yourself around those metrics. You'll kind of come up with a mental model of what you think is happening. You might use additional tooling like the F12 tools or web page test to orient yourself to that data, then you're going to decide what to do. should you cut down images, should you sprite them, should you inline them, et etc, et etc? and then you act and you make the you implement the decision that you had and then the loop starts again and you start observing to see if that made the effect that you wanted it to have. And if at any point in the loop you get lost or you can't solve the problem, you can always shortcut and go right back to the beginning. But observe, orient, decide and act following the OODA loop. Uh, really kind of make sure that you're not doing premature, Optimization, because it's very easy just going, let me go and optimize all the admin pages. Well, great. Those are only accessed twice a year by your users. So maybe you don't really need to focus on them.
0: So I feel like you gave us a kind of a broad framework for how to maybe diagnose performance problems. And it, it seems like since we're focused so much on latency, maybe the one sentence guide to performance is send less data. Is that what you would say most of the techniques that you use to optimize websites are?
2: The words that I use, this is funny, that's exactly what I say in my session. I say do less. It's make fewer requests, and for the requests you have to make, send fewer bytes. And on the server, do less work. Don't go to the database as often. Cache that stuff. Make it easy. Do less. So, yeah, you're exactly right. That is like that's the banner headline. And, and, you know, that that sounds at odds, right? Because you're not really making the application do less. The application and the users are actually able to do more now. But, you know, less is more. So, yeah, do less.
0: I heard an interesting story. A YouTube engineer did a performance experiment where he tried to make the, the I think their page weight was like two megabytes or something, three megabytes. I don't know. Higher than he wanted. And he wanted to do an experiment to get it under 100 kilobytes. Uh, And with a bunch of hacks and changing the page and taking a bunch of stuff out, he got it under 100 kilobytes. They did an A-B test and the average latency actually went way up and they were confused until they found out that it was because all these people from countries without great internet infrastructures could now actually watch videos on YouTube, whereas before they just wouldn't get to the page at all. um, So they'd never sit there waiting (laughs) for it to load because it'd take forever. But it opened them up to whole new audiences, not only made it faster, but it it made more
3: people able to use it at all.
2: That's a cool story. That's, That's pretty funny. I haven't heard that one before. How interesting that
3: they thought they had the opposite effect at first, right? Yeah.
1: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money. You lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your back-end application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. David, do you want to start us off with pics? For
3: Sure. Sure, sure. All right. So my first pick will be the Utah JS 2015 conference, which the talks for the conference were just released this week. They may have come out earlier, but I didn't see them until this week. So a lot of really good gems this year um, in the conference, and I highly recommend that you peruse the talks. I posted a link on Twitter, and we'll put a link here in the show notes. Pretty good stuff. Also, I wanted to pick the conference organizers who had a really cool idea of giving speakers a gift, which is not an original idea, but the gift they gave was their choice of some really fun Lego sets, uh, which I thought was super cool. You got, After you gave your talk, you come and pick your Lego set, and it was really fun. So I thought that was a really clever idea, and so I want to pick it. That's all I have this week.
1: All right, Jameson, what are your picks? I have four picks.
0: The first pick is this article, ES6 overview and 350 bullet points. There's a ton of ES6 information out there, but this is the best... Source that I've found that's just like, I just want to know everything that's in ES6 and it might not be a hundred percent all of the detail on every single one of those features, but just give me all of it. Give me all the features. So this is a good overview for that. I, I was showing it to a friend who's learning JavaScript and he was kind of sad about it. And then, I mean, yeah, 350 is a lot of bullet points, but that's all of it. That's all it is. My next pick is a comic from Saturday morning breakfast cereal. It talks about the high frequency trading thing that we talked about. And if you could convince high frequency traders that the only way that they could trade was by like bringing back Mars dust then the space program would be awesome. And I don't know, (laughs) it's kind of a funny idea of using their great appetite for technical progress to have social progress, too. The next pick is just a link to that article that I mentioned. It's called Page Weight Matters. It's from 2012. So I imagine page weight has only gone up since then. And my last pick, inspired by Dave, the React Rally Talks, which also now features Dave's talk at React Rally, they're all up on YouTube. So uh, my, next, my next pick is the playlist of those talks. If you didn't get a chance to go, check them out. I think they're really good.
1: Those are my picks. Very cool. I'm going to go ahead and throw a few picks out there. Uh, the first one is a book. Actually, the first two are books. The first book is a book about money and investing and saving for the future and having a plan. And it is really well done. It gives you a lot of information to go through. Seriously, it is not a lightweight book. But at the same time, um, it really explains all of the things that you kind of have to know in order to successfully invest for your future. And then to what level you want to invest for your future. So for example, if you just want to be able to kind of pay your basic bills and cover your basic expenses like a mortgage or rent and utilities and food and that kind of stuff, then you, know, you need to save to a certain level. And then if you're looking at you know, maybe getting some extras and things, you know, you save to a different level. If you have kind of a couple of wish lists or what ifs when you retire or when you start, you know, living on that money that you've socked away, you know, what you have to do to get there, there are a whole bunch of worksheets and stuff. Uh The book is called Money Master the Game and it's by Tony Robbins. The second book I have is a historical fiction. It's something that I read to my kids. My father-in-law bought it for my daughter for Christmas and uh, I read it to her and my ni- my eight-year-old daughter, my nine-year-old son, and they really enjoyed it. It's about the Pilgrims and their journey to Plymouth Rock, and it's called Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims, and it's written by Rush Limbaugh. Now, I know some people are going to react to him because he's kind of a divisive person. And anyway, this is just pure historical fiction. I mean, he just took the story of what happened, uh, inserted some fictional characters. They travel through time. There's a little bit of humor in there that's kind of at the kid's level and the word choices are also kind of at that lower reading level. So uh, I really liked it. And regardless of how you feel about Rush Limbaugh, I think these books are great for kids if you want to kind of give them some historical stuff. And Jameson asked in the chat if Tony Robbins is a motivational speaker and the answer is yes, he is. Uh, he has several motivational books. He does events all over the country, but he kind of explains why he put the book together in the book, but essentially he had a lot of people coming to him and asking him about how he managed money. And so he went out there and he actually talked to a whole bunch of people who were good at money and, uh, got their takes on things. So there are a lot, there's a lot of information, a lot of different approaches to it, but he kind of gives you all the information you need to make good decisions.
2: Nick, what are your picks? Well, we've already mentioned one of them, which is VS Code, which is the text editor that I'm really enjoying using right now. Uh, so go ahead and check that out. No matter what system you're on, it's it's something that, that will work for you. Now, does that have a Vim mode? I don't know. I'm not one of those guys. I, I shave off my neckbeard pretty, you know, That's ooh, I get <laughs> Yeah, trouble. why would you send- want a
1: Vim no- Vim mode? <laughs> I have a neckbeard
0: growing right now, actually. Oh, through, okay, through we'll life. S-
2: then send all hate mail to Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, is my first pick. The second one is an amazing book that is actually available. You can, you can get the print copy for some some cash dollars or you can read it for free online. And that is High Performance Browser Networking by Ilya Gregorik. Uh, so it goes into depth on all of the things that we've talked about today and much more like HTTP2 and WebSockets and server sent events and even how the radios inside of your cell phones work. And so I highly recommend that book. And then my last pick will be me. I'll, I'm going to plug myself a little bit if that's okay. I have a plural site. I have a couple of courses out on plural site. So the first one covers metrics and how to measure web performance and how to automate that. So you can just check in your code and your continuous integration server will tell you whether or not you got faster or slower. And I cover how to do that and all the different tooling around that. And then hopefully by the time this episode is published if not a little bit after that i'll have a new course out that is a deep dive into web page test and so i'll spend two to three hours showing off all of the features showing you how to get it up and running on amazon how to script it how to make custom metrics the whole the whole nine yards i basically cover the whole thing soup to nuts so i'd love it if people would check those out and then give me some feedback on twitter about whether or not they like them
1: very cool all right. If people want to follow up with what you're doing or, you know, just see what's going on there or what you're doing with your team, where do they, where do they do that?
2: So they should check out my blog, which is nickcodes.com. I spell my name N-I-K. So it's N-I-K-C-O-D-E-S dot com. Or the best place is going to be on Twitter, uh, N-I-K-M-D-2-3.
1: Cool. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap the show up and we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.